Hello, this is Tiernan Ray, and you are listening to the Technology Letter Podcast on Sunday, November 20th, 2022. This was a rough week for stocks. The week's just ended. The market continued to hear dispiriting words from the U.S. Federal Reserve that they are nowhere near done raising rates. I think it was St. Louis Fed Governor Bullard who is uh, everyone's worst hawk in this sense, warning of more uh, three-quarters of a point hikes. The NASDAQ composite closed down 1.6% for the week and now up just 1.4% month to date. The Standard & Poor's 500 was down almost a point for the week and up just 2.4% for the month. The TL20, the Technology Letter 20 list of stocks to consider, also had a rough week, down 3%, but I'm happy to say it's up 3% for the month, so outpacing the broader indices so far. The worst performers in the TL20 this past week were a couple software vendors, DigitalOcean and HubSpot. Uh, no news with those two names. I think uh, there's just some profit-taking. They had had a pretty good run for a while. Interestingly, some of the better performers were the chip names. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor was up 11%, uh, and ASML, Corvo, Qualcomm, AMD, Universal Display, Analog Devices, all performing much better uh, than NASDAQ, substantially better than the indices this past week. This is consistent with a turnaround in the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, the SOX, which is the broadest measure of semiconductor stocks. Uh, That is up 14% month to date in November. The root of that is, in my opinion, uh, basically less than feared reports from chip names that are letting investors construct a narrative, as investors will do, that the decline in the semiconductor market may be at or near a trough. Now, I wrote last month in October as part of what I wrote for Barron's Advisor that chip stocks actually doing a lot better uh, than thought. The chip market is doing a lot better than thought because what we're seeing is a decline probably off of uh, an extremely high rate of sales for chip uh, products in the last two years. Coming down off a huge explosion in chip sales for two years back to something that might be more like what we had before the lockdowns of the pandemic and then the supply chain crunch. So it's not a deep decline in chip sales. It's coming off of a a big, big high. Uh, We saw some reports this past week from NVIDIA. NVIDIA's outlook for the current quarter was in line with consensus. And there was a report from Applied Materials that helped to relieve some anxiety. Both of those helped uh, to calm the market. For Applied, uh, Applied CEO uh, Gary Dickerson and also the company's CFO, Uh, Bryce Hill told the street that the company has a record amount of backlog. These are parts that have been ordered that Applied has not been able to fulfill because Applied is still dealing with a supply chain crunch in terms of getting the materials it needs to make uh, its machines that it sells to Intel and others to make chips. So this is this kind of crazy circular system in which uh, Applied Materials cannot get enough chips to make machines to make chips with or for its customers to make chips. Uh, So this backlog that we're talking about, up 62% this past quarter, $19 billion. $19 billion, I want to point out, is equivalent to 73% of all of Applied's revenue last fiscal year. So what does that mean? It's not that they've got revenue in the bag, so to speak, but they're still filling orders. They're still trying to meet demand. 
this is still a very strong market for applied materials. Uh, Dickerson, Gary, CEO Gary Dickerson, told the street that while 2023 will be a down year overall, he expects for his industry for chip equipment sales, quote, we believe that Applied's business will be more resilient thanks to our large backlog, growing service business, and strong customer demand for our leadership products that enable key technology inflection. So uh, despite uh, straining to meet orders, Dickerson very positive as he has been for uh, years and years now about the outlook for demand for chips. Uh, NVIDIA's CEO, Jensen Huang, is someone I've spoken with for years now, and uh, he was kind enough to chat with me for a few minutes by phone uh, this week following the company's earnings report. Uh, among the things that uh, we talked about is uh, this emphasis that NVIDIA is placing on selling its GPUs that are used for artificial intelligence to cloud computing providers. In particular, there was a multi-billion dollar, multi-year deal announced this week with Microsoft's Azure unit uh, to construct uh, AI machines for the cloud for years in the future. And Huang told me that Microsoft is going to be, quote, a cheerleader for us when it comes to selling those uh, machines to enterprises. So now you've got an interesting situation where you know, NVIDIA classically sold plug-in GPU boards for computers for gamers to make modded, uh, extremely powerful gaming PCs. They also always sold to the scientific community for scientific computing. These are very large supercomputer type machines costing millions of dollars. Uh, and more recently, they have been able to sell uh, GPUs into the cloud for uh, the running of artificial intelligence. Uh, but those were often uh, gigantic kinds of science projects in the cloud. These new kinds of deals like with Microsoft Azure seem to be emphasizing selling more and more NVIDIA chips in a form and a size that's economical for enterprises. So to me, this is an interesting avenue, a kind of an avenue to market for NVIDIA to sell more AI to enterprises, which I think is an expansion of their market. Wong said to me, quote, it's very clear now that we are at the tipping point of every enterprise company being cloud first. This is jargon, but it basically means that he expects more and more of his customers may, in order to run AI, go to Microsoft and perhaps to Amazon AWS's cloud service and Google's GCP uh, cloud service. And so this is how he expands NVIDIA's enterprise market. Uh, a bigger channel for NVIDIA. So that was interesting. It, it certainly in, uh, is encouraging to me as NVIDIA is one of the TL20 stocks, uh, and so I'm rooting for them. Uh, we also had some interesting in earnings notes from companies kind of making the case that they are recession resistant, uh, maybe not immune, but resistant. I spoke with Kevin Rubin, uh, uh, the C chief financial officer of Altrix, which is a company that makes software to run data analytics. It kind of makes every individual inside a company, not just data scientists, able to be a kind of data analyst, a citizen data analyst. They refer to this as the democratization of data analytics. Uh, during the company's earnings report, uh, Kevin Rubin emphasized that the company's renewal business is very robust. Now, renewals are when a company that bought software from Altrix years ago has to now pay up again to keep running the software. Uh, his point to me is 
when customers deploy the Alteryx software, they're often replacing heavy manual activity like the Excel spreadsheet by, by quote, automating work on a server deep in their IT in environments. And he went on to say that becomes incredibly valuable and sticky for those organizations. So it becomes hard to cancel this software is his point. Um, he also said that the company, Alteryx has done a better job of late of applying a lot of its sales team and aftermarket team, customer success, this kind of thing, to give quote unquote white glove treatment to customers to make sure that they will continue to uh, uh, want to work with the software. So a change in how they do business is important, uh, he emphasized. Now the other thing uh, that I heard this week that was kind of interesting from uh, a software resilience standpoint was a chat I had with uh, the CEO of Nutanix. Nutanix is another uh, software vendor that is kind of transitioning from selling software into on-premise data centers that in, inside of a company's own data center, now selling into the cloud. Rajiv Ramaswamy was in New York City. He was visiting the satellite office of Nutanix. They're based out in San Jose in Silicon Valley, but he was in New York. And um, we sat down to talk for about an hour. And he told me that um, we are, we are approaching the time of inflection points for cloud computing. What does that mean? Well, in recessions, in economic contractions, uh, in two, like in 2000 and 2008, uh, these were inflection points for tech companies. And he's saying, I think that this is likely to be one of them if, in fact, we are heading into or already somehow in an economic contraction, a recession. His point to me was that the nature of cloud computing may change uh, on the other side of a recession. Uh, the issue is that um, companies have been finding that they get locked into using a public cloud provider like Amazon or Azure or Google, and suddenly they're stuck with a huge bill. Uh, this stuff turns out to be much more expensive as you keep using it. Uh, what they would like to do is ultimately to be able to move more nimbly between cloud providers, kind of jump from one to the other as they get good deals you know, for kind of price arbitrage, but also just not to have all their eggs in one basket. And so I asked him, what does it take for that to happen? And Ramaswamy told me, quote, they'll have to start building apps that are portable. Uh, what does that mean? It means not getting locked into the storage, the search functions, um, the multi-zone deployment capabilities, the database capabilities that all these providers like uh, Amazon and Microsoft and Google sell because that's how you get tied into infrastructure that you then can't do without. And quote, he said, the real opportunity is for people to say, I'm going to build with open source tooling, meaning take open source software that is highly portable, build on that in public cloud, and then companies will be able to move from one cloud to another because there's the same open source software in every public cloud. It becomes a kind of operating layer over and above the basic uh, cloud service. And he tells me that Nutanix will be part of that process. He said, quote, we're in the process of making that a common platform that you can use everywhere, meaning things such as open source databases, database as a service. And he predicted, uh, interestingly, that more young companies uh, may be part of this movement. So for example, Confluent, which sells infrastructure called Kafka for real-time data processing, and Snowflake, which is a database company, he and I both sort of were gelling in this idea that these young companies may be the ones that define a new 
uh, era of cloud post-recession where there's an ability of customers to not be locked into one single cloud provider and to sort of span the different clouds. So I thought that was really uh, an eye-opening technical discussion to me. Uh, it was hard to pay attention to earnings this week because there, there's so many kind of scandals of young rich men who do bad things. One is, of course, Elon Musk, who just keeps uh, generating fantastic headlines for all kinds of bumbling moves at Twitter as he fires people, then calls them back, and then they then he threatens to fire, and then they quit before he can fire them. It's a disaster. But the disaster I was focused on was FTX. This is a privately held company. It's a four-year-old startup uh, that uh, is an exchange for trading uh, cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin and Ether. Founded in 2019 by Sam Bankman-Fried and a couple of other young friends, uh, is now in Chapter 11 bankruptcy because they have lost billions in clients' money. Uh, the interesting thing to me is, I, I don't usually like to pile on to things, but I couldn't resist this week. The person who is now CEO of FTX, who's been put in to liquidate the thing, which basically means that when you're in Chapter 11, you try and go and get money to give to creditors. This gentleman, John J. Ray III, who has been doing these kinds of liquidations for oh, 40 years, he oversaw the notorious energy failure Enron, which you probably recall. John J. Ray III, this week, uh, gave a long 30-page filing with bankruptcy court after trying to get a hold of documents and having a, hot, a tough time of it at FTX. He said, quote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented, close quote. The worst situation he's encountered in 40 years, even worse than Enron. What was going on at FTX? The absence of an accurate list of bank accounts. There was no record keeping as to which bank accounts the company had. Employees bought stuff on the company tab. Quote, in the Bahamas, which is where FTX was headquartered and where Sam Bankman-Fried was apparently residing, I understand, said John J. Ray III, that corporate funds of the FTX group were used to purchase homes and other personal items for employees and advisors. An audit firm that was retained by FTX just sounds like uh, screwballs. Preger Metis is the firm, and writes John J. Ray III, a firm with which I am not familiar and whose website indicates that they are the, quote, first ever CPA firm to officially open its metaverse headquarters in the metaverse platform Decentraland. This is like saying your auditor operates in a, inside of a video game, which maybe is appropriate since much of cryptocurrency is basically just a video game. Uh, other weird things here at FTX, an HR, human resources procedure, that makes together employee and contractor records with unclear records and lines of responsibility says John J. Ray. Their management of payments looked worse than a couple of kids who were running a lemonade stand for the first time. Quote, employees of the FTX group submitted payment requests through an online chat platform where a disparate group of supervisors approved disbursements by responding with personalized emojis. They did not keep appropriate books and records, writes Ray or security controls with respect to digital assets. This is the basic custodial function, right? People make deposits, 
You're supposed to keep track of deposits in an orderly fashion. It's a basic requirement of an exchange. They didn't keep any books. Uh, and they managed records like they were on Snapchat. Uh, Frank Bankman Freed, the CEO, uh, was urging employees to use disappearing message software to communicate things that, these programs that auto-delete after a period of time, like, like Snap. Uh, this is a disgrace, and uh, it, for me, makes the case that much of cryptocurrency is turning out to be kind of the worst of all worlds. It's not decentralized the way it was supposed to be. It's in the hands of giant companies like FTX, at least for a moment in time. And then those giant companies, although they're centralized, don't have the protections that the centralized banking system happens has. The Securities Investor Protection Corporation, SIPSI, uh, FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, these basic things that have been around for decades that protect investors do not exist in crypto. So you've got giant firms that are sort of centralizing the activity but offer no protection. And it's one of the reasons that I think crypto has broken some of its fundamental promises this year. And so it's, it's decline in price, decline in the price of assets such as Bitcoin is more than just uh, a sudden sort of lull in enthusiasm. I think some fundamental things are broken here. This coming week of earnings is a short week given the US Thanksgiving Day holiday. Uh, but there are a few names to pay attention to, including Dell and Zoom, both report on Monday afternoon. The technology letter 20 name analog devices coming up on Tuesday. And I don't know anything, but I have a good feeling about analog devices. Why do I have a good feeling? Well, it's a great company. Um, it's a very diversified company selling into so many markets. Um, it's not centered in one area like microprocessors like Intel or AMD. They report Tuesday. I'll be watching that. And HP Inc., the... Um, PC maker will also report on uh, Tuesday. So we'll get a, a read on the PC market. I mean, we already know the PC market's kind of terrible at the moment, but we'll get more of a read from both Dell and HP this week. A parting thought, TLDR. You're going to laugh, but I never knew what TLDR was until this week. This is one of these acronyms that cyberspace invented. Turns out TLDR is too long, didn't read. I now know why I didn't know the meaning of this, because this is the kind of expression that I hate. Uh, nothing is ever too long didn't read. You get distracted, you may get interrupted in reading stuff, but if something's good, I'll read tens of thousands of pages of it. And I'm a slow reader. I do not read fast. It takes me forever. I also daydream a lot, so I get interrupted. It, it probably takes me 10 times as, as long to read anything as the average reader, even like a prescription label or the ingredients on Bisquick for making pancakes. So the whole sentiment behind TLDR it's kind of snarky, you know, I'm, I'm too important to spend my time, is just sort of emblematic of an age that wants it easy. And uh, that's why I now know, I didn't know what TLDR was. It goes hand in hand with those little content warnings, which I never understand. You know, this just popped up in the last few years. An article has to tell you it's going to cost you a minute of your life, which to me seems to be counterproductive. This is sort of a deterrent to me. I don't want to know it's going to cost me three minutes of my life or that it's a long read. I have no idea what that even means. Uh, I just, it just seems like being sat down and told, you're about to listen to something really boring, so brace yourself. I don't want to know that. If it's going to happen to me, it's going to happen. Um, I'm happy to say that technology letter readers spend a tremendous amount of time with long articles. I'm guilty of writing very long articles 
2,000, 3,000, 4,000 words on things that are dense te technology and business writing are not usually um, the kind of thing most people sit still for. So I'm very grateful that I have super intelligent readers who actually want to read this stuff, even though it's um, a long read, quote unquote, as they say. Well, thanks for listening in again this week. And if you're celebrating the US Thanksgiving holiday with friends and loved ones, uh, travel safely and have a wonderful time with them. And uh, see you on the other side. Thank you.